0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast.
2: Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed.
0: When Allied forces invaded Italy in September 1943, they hoped to be in Rome by Christmas. But by the end of the year, after four months of unrelenting warfare the Italian capital was still 70 miles away. In his new book, an accompanying article for BBC History magazine, historian, author and podcaster James Holland chronicles the opening months of the Italian campaign. Here he speaks to Rob Attar about this savage clash between the Allies and Nazi Germany.
3: I'd like to begin by asking why Italy? Considering the Allies were already planning for a second front in the West which would go on to be D-Day, of course, in 1944. Why did they also then launch this invasion of Italy?
1: Well, I think there's really, I think there were really sound reasons for doing it, and certainly sound reasons on paper. So the first reason, and this is their thinking sort of, you know, as early as May they're starting to think about this, is, you know, it might hustle Italy out of the war, because even at the end of the Sicilian campaign on the 17th of August, Italy is still in the war, you know, on the side of the Germans. Now, on that very same day, uh, General Castelloni actually starts Opens talks in Lisbon with Beadle Smith, who is the chief of staff to Eisenhower, who's supreme Allied commander of the Mediterranean, uh, and they, they, you know, they are opening talks, so they, they know the Allies know that the the Italians are on the precipice and kind of you know ready to jump, but but it's not a done deal and it's a negotiation and there might be reverses and all the rest of it. So invading Italy is is encouraging it because what becomes absolutely clear to the Allies and is absolutely forefront of the mind of the Italians is the fear of retribution from the Germans. And that's less the people of it, Italy, but more the leadership, who are a bunch of feckless, pretty atrocious people. And, and what they're worried about is German retrib- retribution getting captured and being, frankly, incarcerated or worse, executed. And that's what's driving them. You know, So I'm talking about the king, Vittorio Emanuele III. I'm talking about Badoglio, who's the prime minister, Ambrosio, who's the head of the commando, Supremo, the combined Combine chiefs, etc. These these kind of people. So there is good reason for trying to hustle Italy out of the war. Because if Italy's out of the war, Italian troops are garrisoned a huge swathe of territory in the south. So they've got obviously all of Italy, but most of the Balkans, Yugoslavia, Greece, into the Aegean and Dodecanese, etc. This is a huge swathe. And just to the east of the Balkans is Romania, which has Palesti oil fields, which is the only source of real oil that the Germans have. So it's an incredibly valuable part of assets to the reich and hitler i mean everyone talks about the the british being obsessed with the southern flank and the mediterranean but actually if anyone's obsessed with the mediterranean it's hitler And, and clearly he's not going to abandon this territory you know which means he's going to have to fill it with his own troops and those troops are going to have to come from somewhere else and that's going to come from the western front and also the eastern front and that will make the very challenging job of operation overlord the the planned cross-channel invasion, at this point planned for May 1944, just that teeny bit easier. And anything that makes Overlord easier has got to be a big tick. So originally, the early plans are, wouldn't it be great to just get in there, kind of, you know, force these two things? Um, So maybe an invasion of Sardinia, just get into the kind of the the toe of the boot uh, uh, and so on. But very quickly, it starts to evolve. And, and one of the drivers is Churchill, who's sort of going, well, I really think we should get to Rome. The psychological impact of getting a major European city is absolutely huge. Uh, and maybe we should do a landing further up the leg. And why, why crawl up the leg when you can sort of bounce straight in at the knee? You know, is his line. And actually, that's pretty spurious. But what becomes a much more valid reason for making an all-out all effort is the potential of grabbing the airfield complex around Foggia. Now, Foggia is about a third of the way up the boot on the right-hand side, on the Adriatic eastern side. And it's one of the very rare bits of flat land in Italy. And there you could put heavy bombers, strategic air forces. And that becomes very much upper my, particularly in the American minds, and those of the airmen, you know, Tedder and, and Spots from the, on the US side of things, but also Hap Arnold, who's the chief of staff of the United States Army Air Force. And actually, even, even the British guys, are, like Tedder, like Portal, start to kind of sort of come round to this, this idea pretty quickly. And... As if to kind of prove the point, on the 18th of August is the, is the Schweinfurt raid operated from by the 8th Air Force operating out of England. And it's a complete catastrophe. And I can't remember how many of these they lose. It's like 70-odd aircraft out of, you know, it's like 20% of the, of the attacking force, which is completely unsustainable. Regensburg is, and Schweinfurt are beyond fighter escort cover. And what they're discovering is that flying by day in these formations with their 30 machine guns each is not enough to prevent them being shot down by German fighter aircraft. And there is a huge requirement before Operation Overlord, D-Day, to have control of the airspace over northwest Europe. And there's a massive panic already on in the summer of 1943 about how they're going to achieve this, because they don't have a long-range fighter. And most of the Luftwaffe aircraft factories are deep in the Reich, in Austria and southern Germany and so on, Which is beyond this fighter range. So, what are you going to do about it? So, suddenly, if you can get into Italy where you're closer and you're closer to Ploesti than you are operating from England or indeed from North Africa, and you can get operate there into the Southern Reich and into Austria and into Regensburg and Schweinfurt and, and Wiener Neustadt and all these sort of places where there are major aircraft plants, what's not to like? And Italy is seen as a, as, as a kind of a helpful campaign for overlord which in turn is about winning the war quicker, of course. And this starts to very quickly kind of sort of gain momentum all of its own. The problem is that they just don't have enough assault shipping. And the Allies, it's all about amphibious operations because they're coming from the United States, they're coming from Britain, they've got islands in the atolls in the middle of the Pacific to to attack. You know, everything has to come by ship and if you don't have ports and you don't have key sites the only way you can you can land on these islands in the pacific or indeed the beaches of normandy is with assault craft and everyone in the world has come late to the value of assault craft and and it's not until 1941 that the first higgins boat for example is is, is trialed And the Americans suddenly realized at the beginning of 1942, yikes, you know, we need to get on with this, as do the British, incidentally. You know, we really need this, this is our, this is our force enabler is having lots and lots of assault craft. You know, you can have as many men as you like, you have as many tanks as you like, but if you haven't, can't get them to the beaches before you've cleared the ports, you've got a problem on your hands. So this huge assault craft building program gets underway in the United States and between the beginning of April 1942 and the end of May 1943, the Americans alone built 8,719 assault craft, which is a huge number. But it's not enough, because by August 1943, they've stopped that programme, and they're now building other vessels and freighters and liberty ships and what have you. And their commitments globally have increased massively massively. And the other thing that you ha- one has to understand is the toll on these landing craft is absolutely enormous. So they have 1753 assault craft for Operation Husky, the invasion of Sicily on the 10th of July 1943. But it's not like you're putting all your troops in your in your assault craft, taking to the beach, job done. These things are beetling back the entire duration of the 38-day campaign. And every time they hit the beach, it's bam against that beach. And that, you know, the, the, the door comes down, the ramp comes down, whether you're a landing ship, whether you're a landing craft tank, or whether you're just a, a Higgins boat or, you know, an LCA. doesn't matter the size. The point is that, that the toll on these is absolutely enormous. I was Actually, I was recently in a Higgins boat. They're really super basic. So... When they're basic, that means they're quite easy to mend, but it also means there's quite a lot that can go, you know, quite easy for them to go wrong. You know, they're rough and ready. And so the maintenance of these assault craft, when you're giving them a punishing schedule, is absolutely huge. So after Sicily, lots of them are then get sent off to the Pacific and get sent back to the UK, which means there's not really very much left in the Mediterranean. And that's a massive problem, because to go all out into southern Italy so much so that you can potentially capture Rome and, more importantly, the Fodger airfield complex, requires a huge commitment of force. But you don't quite have enough to assure what you're doing is going to be successful. And uh, and that is the rub. But you can see that the Chiefs of Staff, the Allied Chiefs of Staff, are starting to really... They've crossed a Rubicon. You know, they're psychologically... It's now a big operation. It's, it's 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 a major invasion. It's not just a tow, because if you just go into the tow, you've just got endless mountains, narrow roads. You're never going to get... You know, it's very easy for the Germans to block. You have to do an outflanking manoeuvre. So that means going further up the leg. But then that means distancing to yourself from, you know, whatever force you send across the Straits of Messina into the tow, which is probably not going to be mutually supporting. And... You're likely to do a, an attack on the western side because that's closest to Sicily and, and, and ports in the Mediterranean that you can use, which basically means you're doing a very ambitious invasion, or amphibious operation, with not enough. So what they do instead is they start thinking, well, it's going to be okay, because we're going to knock the Italians out of the war, and then they can come in on our side, and part of the ne- surrender negotiations are, are that the Italians will not contest the invasion, that if necessary, they'll turn the guns on the Germans, so, you know, that's a bit of material support, which is a kind of force multiplier, in theory. The other thing is that back in May 1943, they picked up a, um, um, an ultra-decrypt of, of coded traffic from the Germans, which suggested that Hitler wanted, you know, should the Allies land in Italy, Hitler would retreat to the Pisa-Rimini line, which is about 200 miles north of Rome. So, in other words, most of the southern half of Italy wouldn't be contested. So that's all really good. And when they're talking to Castelloni, the Italian negotiator, he says, oh, yes, 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 that's absolutely the plan of the the Germans to move to the Pisa-Rimini line. But, you know, can the Allies trust him? Because, of course, he would say that, because he wants them to land and he wants Italy out of the war with the minimum amount of potential retribution from the Germans. So the Allies sort of clutch onto these two snippets that the Italians are going to help, that the Germans are going to retreat way north of Rome, when really there's not nothing like concrete evidence to suggest that is going to be the case. So the whole thing is is conducted on a wish and a prayer. But that you know, they've as I say, they've they've crossed that line. You know, in their heads it's kind of we have to do this because this is the way to support Operation Overlord. So that, <laughs> that's a very long winded answer for you, Rob, is why they go into Italy.
2: Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelpcom extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp h history extra.
1: Life is a highway. And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mc Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
3: And from what you're saying, is it fair to say that their initial invasion plans but well, doesn't go as planned, does it? They meet a lot more resistance than they were expecting and not in the places they were expecting.
1: I think they are expecting, they are expecting the Germans to fight back. Now, what they know is that at Salerno, there is the 16th Panzer Division, but in that whole area of sort of, you know, from Rome southwards, there's there's some eight German divisions, which is part of Army Group C. Now, fortunately for the Allies, they're right (laughs) that, that, that Hitler is planning to retreat to the Pisa Rimini line. And so he's got Army Group B under Erwin Rommel. Up in the north, and, and Rommel is a big advocate of this because he's obviously spent a lot of time confronting the Allies, and particularly the British, and he knows what Allied air power is like, and he knows the importance of having very short lines of communication because it's very long lines of communication, which arguably did for him in North Africa. So he's all for kind of if you go north, then then you you're in the you you can build an incredibly strong line between Pisa and Rimini, where which is where it's a sort of mountain to mountain, coast to coast, either side of the peninsula. You can make that an absolutely impregnable fortress line. Then you've got the Alps, you know, so you've got much shorter lines of communication coming through from 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 the Reich, and that means you need less forces to do it, which means you've got more more forces to then spread over Yugoslavia, you know, Greece and, and the Aegean without kind of disrupting the Eastern Front and Western Front too much, which is pretty sound thesis and strategy when you think about it. But Hitler has kept Kesselring, who's been the Commander-in-Chief of German Forces in the Mediterranean for quite a long time, since the end of 1941, in the South with army group c and he's got these eight divisions the allies know these eight divisions are there but they're not all around salerno so the challenge is is to get in and get a establish a bridgehead before those eight divisions can all converge on salerno if indeed they do because their understanding is that they won't contest it too much they might contest it a bit but then they'll all bug off up up to the north and, and the weird thing is the paradox about all this is that is exactly Hitler's plan. They know that the Italians are about to bug out. They know that they're they're going to sign an armistice, and Hitler is getting increasingly impatient by this, without any sign from the Italians as what the, their plans are. And by beginning of September, he has resolved that on the ninth of September, what he's going to do is tell present the Italians with a fait accompli. He's going to say to them, right, you're going to you're going to hold the southern half of, of, of Italy, we're going to go to the north, and everything in the north is going to come under German jurisdiction, whether you like it or not. And that's what he's going to present to them. But, of course, Operation Avalanche, the invasion of uh, Salerno, happens on the 9th of September, the very day he was planning to tell the Italians this fate accompli, and so he never does. And actually, Kesselring, on w- on one level, makes quite a good fist of things. You know, the Allies are severely threatened. Most of the Italians don't contest it at all, and that's because the senior leadership has sent out instructions not to contest the German forces at the armistice. So the Germans sweep in, clear out all the barracks, send all the guys back to Germany as forced labour, and, and do occupy all these territories themselves. And anyone who resists gets very, very rough treatment. And we all know about Captain Corelli's mandolin and, and Kefalonia, for example. You know, that, that's all part of this... This, this moment. But Rome, there is a, there is a popular insurrection, and, the, and it is contested, but it's all over by 4.30pm on the 10th of, of September, so the day after um, Operation Avalanche is launched. And that means that Kesselring can send all his units to converge on Salerno. So he keeps a second fauschenjäger in Rome to oversee the occupation of Rome, and everyone else is sent southwards. And the Allies know this, you know, Mark Clark, who's the commander of the Fifth Army that's landed there, which is actually a coalition force of British and Americans, you know, he's only got four divisions landed, which is not very many, against potentially seven German divisions. Kesselring, who is the commander in chief of, of Army Groups mm-hmm. South, and von Weitinghoff, who is the tenth Army commander in the South, what they do is that they chuck all their eggs in one basket and all and send everything to defeat the Allied invasion at Salerno. But by doing that, they've left the back door open. And so the 1st Airborne Division, the 1st British Airborne Division, is landed at Taranto on the same day, the 9th of September, because they don't need assault craft for that, because the port has been abandoned by the Germans. And so they can, you don't need assault craft, because you can just land on ships by the docks. And so they, you know, they get into Taranto, which is a major port, and then very quickly you manage to get Brindisi and Bari, because they haven't been contested. The only German troops in the southeast of of Italy in Apulia are the 1st Fallschirmjäger division, the 1st parachute division. And even some of those units have been sent to Salerno to stiffen the backbone of 29th Panzer Grenadier division and 26th Panzer which Hitler feels are kind of not quite, you know, got the metal that is required. And that means that the whole of that southeast area of Italy is held by a skeleton force, of Falschmjager, who are by their very nature, because their paratroopers is very lightly armed and lightly equipped, and so the best they can do is vague rearguards and lots of demolitions, you know, they can blow up bridges and lay mines and stuff, but they can't really do much more than that, which means it's an absolute gimme for the Allies, who suddenly, the moment you've got Taranto, Brindisi, and Bari are pouring troops in onto that eastern side, and so... Foggia, the Foggia airfields, one of the main aims for going into Italy from the Allied point of view, is captured on the 27th of September, and it's an absolute, it's an absolute shoe in And that's because the Germans have made the catastrophic mistake of, of, of contesting, of, of chucking everything at Salerno and it fails. And it's really interesting because when you do actually go to Slerno, there's the, the accounts of it are very dramatic and how Clark, Mark Clark, the army commander was, was preparing to evacuate and all the rest of it. He was not preparing to evacuate he was considering plans should it be necessary, which is not the same thing at all. I mean that just makes good sense Actually, he harnessed his troops incredibly effectively. You know, he got all the cooks and the clerks and the truck drivers and all the rest of it, got the manning aligned. But but interestingly, the, the, the main source of threat, which was this sort of central point of in the line the germans hadn't done enough wrecking you know they hadn't had time to do any rec- reconnaissance so this multi-division mm-hmm. kampfgruppe group or this sort of battle group spread down but it got caught in a v-shape as two rivers the and calori converged only about three miles inland from the beaches and only a mile or so from clark's fifth army headquarters at the um, albanella station but they were never ever going to get out of that because the banks of the rivers are too steep and they couldn't get across. They couldn't bridge it. There was all the bridging had gone and they literally just couldn't get from one side to the other. And interesting rising on one side of it is a series of little minor terraces. It's only back sort of, you know, 15, 20 feet high. And beyond that was the American field artillery and the German battle group. There's all this armor in this sort of V of this converging two rivers couldn't see the guns because of these ridges. But because they were field guns rather than anti-tank guns, anti-tank guns firing directly, field guns lobbing shells, they were lobbing 3,500 shells in a matter of hours into this very, very tight space. And so, although the Germans you know, on a map looked very, very close, actually they might have been 25 miles away. I mean, they were, they were just literally never, ever going to get across. So actually, it's a victory for, for Mark Clark and his 5th Army and the Allies, and... It's an absolute defeat for the Germans. Now, the sensible thing to have done at this point would have been to absolutely retreat to the Pisa-Rimini line, blowing up everything in the way, all the bridges, lots of rearguards, all that kind of stuff. But they don't, because Hitler has been impressed by this effort by Kesselring's men, and suddenly the Hitlerian spotlight is on him. And once you've got the Hitlerian spotlight on you, you're in trouble, because... (laughs) You know, Hitler doesn't like retreating. And so all talk of going to the Pisa Rimini line is kicked into touch, and suddenly you've got this massive slog on your hands. And also, by the beginning of October, it started to rain. And it then rains 50% of the time between then and the end of December. So it just turns into this absolute spiral of of awfulness.
3: So, yeah, on, on that note, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the nature of the fighting at this point. I mean, how brutal was it?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. And it's pretty bad right from the word go. And there's various aspects of this. But at Salerno, it's just incredibly hot. It's incredibly close fighting. You've got this sort of semi-circle of flatland, which is surrounded by hills. So when you're on the flat bit, you can't really see very far in front of you because it's just endless olive groves and vineyards and stuff, and, and your your visibility is, is, is shut off. Germans on the hills, all this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, it's a nightmare. And and at the crisis point on the 13th of September, you know, Clark has got every single one of his infantry battalions committed, which is a situation you never, ever want. You know, you never, you know, there's no, no circumstances ever in Normandy, for example, where you would have all three of your three battalions in a, in a brigade stroke US regiment committed at the same time. You'd always want something in reserve. That's just not the case. That is the nature of the shortage of troops. As the rain comes in, what happens is that, the normal advantages the Allies have in in mechanisation and air power, all that sort of it, is slightly kind of neutered. And so it ends up being the poor bloody infantry particularly that have to do the hard yards, and, and a huge amount is expected of them. Whilst at the same time, they are building up their capacity to host four-engine bombers at Foggia. So, for example, by the 25th of November 1943, a pipeline has been laid, which is 20 miles long, and capable of transferring 160,000 gallons of high-octane fuel every single day. That has been laid from the coast up to Foggia, and that comes at at a price, you know, because shipping is still short, and, you know, because of the huge global reach and expectations and demands on the Allies. And it is the frontline troops that, that suffer the most. You know, the, the replacement troops are not enough, the equipment's not enough, there's never enough ammunition, all this kind of stuff. It's just There's just not enough for the huge levels of expectation which have been flung onto 5th Army and 8th Army in Italy. So they're contesting with that. And, of course, Italy is incredibly mountainous, and, and you know, the roads are, you know, there's, there's asphalted roads in cities and stuff, but most roads are are what we would call Strade Bianche, which is these, these kinds of dirt roads. And they're absolutely fine if you're kind of trotting mules and carts along them and the occasional Fiat Topolino, but they're absolutely not okay if you've got you know three thousand vehicles in a in a modern Allied infantry division, which is which is what it is. And you know and those are heavy Bedfords and, and Hamels and and all the rest of it, as well as tanks and huge heavy artillery pieces and and so on and so forth. You know and they just get churned up and they get even more churned up when it starts to rain and also for the germans in retreat it's incredibly easy to blow these things up you know so every bridge every culvert every you know mountain pass every tunnel it's all blocked you know so that then requires a huge amount of engineering effort in terms of dozers and equipment and graders and Cranes and, and everything else. So the, your commitment in terms of material strength is not just weaponry. It's other kind of mechanised strength, which all has to be shipped across. And all is competing with one another. And so it's not surprising that it gets a little bit sluggish. And what is amazing, really, when you look at the terrain, you look at the terrain and way over which they're passing... And you look at the winter conditions is how far they do get. The Allies do get by the end of the year. And actually they do break through the winter line, which is they get across the Volturno. They get across a series of rivers on the Adriatic coast, including the Sangro, for example. And they do break the Bernhard line, which is the first major defensive position that straddles the width of the, of the leg of, of Italy. And there's this huge black mark on the Italian campaign particularly from the Allied perspective, that the effort was sluggish, that they got ground down, that, that Alexander, the army group commander, sort of lacked grip, that, you know, they were all at loggerheads and all this kind of stuff, none of which is true. And, and again, if you think about the four aims of the Italian campaign, get Italy out of the war, draw off lots of German troops, get the Fodger airfields and take Rome, only Rome eludes them. And, and I think you can argue and argue very convincingly that of the four aims, Rome is the least important. It has some psychological gains, but, but in terms of material gain, it's doesn't offer anything really it's, it's fodger is the absolute number 1 and they've got it and because they've got it they've also decided that instead of sending six bomb groups over to over to fodger, they're going to send 21 which will be complete by march 1944 well again you know that's a that's a huge amount of manpower equipment tools tentage you know sustaining it all all the rest of it there's a big difference between 21 and 6 and again, that has to compete with the land forces. If anyone is to blame for the slowing down of the of the Italian campaign, it is the chiefs of staff because they've expected too much from too little. And it's interesting because General George Marshall, who is the chief of the American staff, um, general staff, says at the, at the the Washington conference in May 1943, he says, "If we commit to an operation, a major operation, we need to commit to it 100 percent." I'm paraphrasing, but it's words to that effect. And you know, that is what they don't do. And that's because Italy is important, but it's not top of the list. And really, it's a filler. It's a it's a stopgap. It's, it's a kind of, you know, we've got all these forces in the Mediterranean. It's, you know, we're not doing Overlord till May. You know, we might as well do something and, and do something to help Operation Overlord. Tyranny of Overlord is overshadowing all the decision-making in Italy. And Italy is coming second. So although Traditionally, we kind of think of the Italian campaign being playing second fiddle to overlord the moment Rome falls on the fourth of June and D-Day happens on the sixth of June in, in the cross-channel invasion. In actual fact, it's playing second fiddle to overlord right from the word go. And and that is that is the problem. And also you compounded by the catastrophic decisions made by the Germans, which is to contest south of Rome when strategically it makes no sense. Because if the Allied troops are having a having a terrible time of things, So are the Germans. And Kesselring's mismanagement of his troops is absolutely appalling. So he's constantly mixing up units and firefighting and plugging holes with a company from one division to another division and all this sort of stuff. So cohesion is just absolutely, completely shot. And all this misery and this awfulness and sort of fighting over kind of 3,000-foot peaks and with the rain slashing down and the wind rattling through and and, and shrapnel kind of 100 times worse because there isn't any soil to absorb an explosion and you've got shards of stone as well as shards of metal. All that is is also to be run alongside the absolute horrific experience of the Italians who are caught up in the middle of this. And
3: um, that's actually something I wanted to talk to you about, because you make a very interesting point in the article you've written for us about the, this campaign about the fact that the Italians at this point are not enemy combatants. They are now, they've surrendered, and yet they are very much caught up in this war and they suffer a lot of damage, a lot of casualties. But how much of a moral dilemma was this for the Allies that they were putting these people through all of this carnage?
1: Yeah, I think I think it, it, I think, think it is. But I think by 1943, you know, Britain's been in the war for four years. A lot of blood has been spilt. No one asked the Italians to declare war on Britain or the Western Allies. And so there is lots of sympathy, but there is also kind of, you know, you made your bed kind of approach. And there's no question from the diaries that I was reading, it sort of vacillates between contempt to... Humane concern for for what they're what they're going through. The way the Allies fight is to use this sort of very firepower heavy heavy way, and the way the Germans are, there is a reason for doing that, which is to liberate Italy and to get up there and and rid the rid the Italians of the Nazis. So there is there is at least a reason for it. Whereas the German reason for destruction, destroying all infrastructure, blowing up bridges, blowing up houses at the end of each you know the main drag in a town, so that the Allies can't use it. All this kind of stuff. That is purely to slow down the Allies. Uh, and they're killing all the animals and all the rest of it. They are deliberately trying to create a humanitarian crisis in Italy, because they know that the, the Allies will have to pick up the pieces, which then mean a diversion of Allied resources, which then means that you're then slowing down their ability to move fast up the leg of Italy. So you can see the reasons for it, but it is obviously doubly vindictive, because the Italians, in their eyes, stabbed them in the back. But you know what's interesting about the italians is most Italians—they you know, don't want to be in the war. They've absolutely shot with it. They're done with it. Their kind of, sort of attitude to central authority is pretty rudimentary. And there's a lot of areas in in, in Italy where the societies are extremely localized, extremely unchanged, haven't changed in, in hundreds and hundreds of years. And suddenly, this kind of sort of typhoon kind of rains down on them, and and whole communities are just completely destroyed. And, you know, as as, you know, as writing this, of course, you know, you're looking at footage of of Ukraine and you're seeing Ukrainian villages and towns and Bakhmut and all the rest of it being utterly destroyed in precisely the same way. And that adds a level of, of kind of sort of relevance and pertinence to what you're writing about in Italy, I think. It is absolutely horrendous for the Italians, you know, who are starving, there's rampant inflation, there's a kind of sort of vindictiveness in which the Allies have set a lot of the kind of Allied military government kind of standards. Deskwallers back in Algiers headquarters, you know, allied headquarters in Algiers. You don't know much about Italy. Don't really know what they're doing. Don't feel massively simpatico because it's a long way away. All those sort of things, all those come into play. But if you're an ordinary average, average Italian, you know, you're just trying to get on with your life. The war's already caused enough damage. And now, and now here it is on your doorstep. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard not to be, be kind of profoundly moved by, you know, what one is reading and the levels of destruction and just the sort of general ghastliness of it all.
3: And in your last answer, you referred there to things you read in the diaries of the people who fought in Italy. And I know you spent a lot of time reading letters, diaries and things like that. Were there any things that really stood out to you from the experiences that were conveyed in those?
1: Yeah, um, a, a lot, to be honest. I've, I've slightly had a sort of change of heart about how I, how I do these things, because, you know, when I first started writing about the Second World War, I was, there were lots of veterans, and, you know, I just hoovered them all up, and I loved talking to them all. But actually, the perspective of someone talking 60, 70, 80 years after the events to, to what they're writing on the particular day that events are happening is markedly different. And what's incredible about reading particularly decent diaries and decent letters is the detail that they go into, and of course, their characters that they were on that particular day really start to start to emerge and so twenty one year old gunnery officer or the thirty two year old battalion commander or forty one year old medical officer or whoever it might be, or cipher clerk or infantryman, their characters just burst off the pages. And they come back to life in a, in a very sort of profound and deeply moving way. And, and you start getting, I mean, I just found myself getting very involved and wrapped up in their daily trials and tribulations. And of course, depends on who you are and what your character's like and what side you're on and which part of the theater you're in. You know, you have, they have very different responses. But, you know, one of the guys is a, is a German battalion commander whose diary I was reading a chap called Jörg Zellner. And. It's just full of of angst and and worry and concern for his family back in, in Augsburg and, you know, why are they fighting the war and the war being so senseless and awful. But on the other hand... You know, you're seeing the ruins of an Italian village, and this is what we can expect in Germany. So what else can I do but fight? You know, I'm fighting for my family above all and all this sort of stuff, and then curse this stupid war, and why haven't we got more Luftwaffe? And, you know, I'm going to take my boots off tonight because the shell isn't going to worry whether I'm wearing my boots or not. And, you know, it's... it's, it's again, you, you can't help but like him and empathise with the awfulness of the experiences in which he finds himself and the privations he has to suffer. But equally so with a Canadian or British or American diary. I mean, the the dilemmas they're all facing, whether you be Mark Clark or whether you be a grunt on the ground, you know, they're really moving. Or or indeed, the testimonies of Italians, you know, who are trying to kind of make sense of this absolute mayhem and who know nothing. If you're living in Eberle, the time of Salerno invasion, you have no idea what the Germans are going to do. You don't know whether the Germans are going to come in and rape you or whether they're going to, you know, the Allies are going to destroy your town. You just don't know day to day what the end of the day holds for you. You don't know whether you'll be, be alive, whether you'll be dead, whether you'll be maimed, whether your house will be blown up. So it's, it's the constant uncertainty which has gone, of course, in a testimony 60 years on because you know what's happened. And obviously when you're writing about self evidently, if you're including people that you're talking to after the war, they've survived. Whereas when you're writing about people who are writing letters and diaries, you don't know whether they're going to survive. They might die. And indeed, a number of them do or get wounded or whatever. And I think that adds a level of drama and jeopardy and which has certainly swept me along i mean i I found drawing on contemporary sources more than sources that that you know or histories i found it really really moving rob i mean you know it's, it's really hard not to get swept up in these people's lives and you you find yourself gunning for them and and when they're upset you know it's hard not to feel their pain you know just and i suppose it's like anything isn't it you know when you don't know someone they're just a statistic but when you know their story they become you know they become flesh and blood don't they
3: and i suppose as you know the wartime generation gets older and there are fewer of them left this is i suppose the direction military history writing is going to be going in anyway for the second world war
1: yeah i I, I guess so you know i like to think of myself less as a military historian more as a historian of war because i think you know conflict is about social history and political history and economic history as and and cultural history as much as it is about the military side of things you know and i always try with my books to do the kind of 360 sweep with you know someone like italy you know include all the kind of civilian experiences too i think as as a writer and as a reader what you want to do is you want to get as close to the action as you possibly can to transporting yourself to that that remote mountain in the middle of italy or that destroyed town or, or whatever it might be you want to kind of you want to have a sense of what was it like you know what what are the smells the sounds the terrain the experiences? the only way i think now i um, and i've and i've just you know i've just changed my my view on this i the only way you can get close to that is by looking at contemporary sources i think It has to have that kind of, that immediacy. And it's interesting because, of course, you know, what they're worrying about on any given day in November 1943 is completely different to how they remember it 60, 70 years on. And they all obsess about food. They all obsess about letters coming in, particularly about letters. You know, got another letter today, didn't get another letter today, haven't had a letter for a week, you know, got three in a row, all this kind of stuff. You know, they all all of that is written down they're constantly obsessed about what's going on in the air bombers coming over got strafed again good to see our lads our boy, our boys going over you know they they bombed the, the town up ahead you know glad i'm not a german under there all that kind of stuff you know it's that kind of thing and it's air power and letters that dominate their diaries in a way that does not dominate the conversation in the decades that follow in their memory it's, it's really really interesting so, overall, having written this book, how do you think we need to view or perhaps
3: rethink this campaign?
1: Well, I, I think it's one of those things. I would say don't be too judgmental, and don't be too judgmental on on the particularly on the allies. You know who, you know what everyone's trying to do is win the war as quickly as possible. <laughs> you know, whereas the German, what the Germans trying to do is kind of not lose the war as 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 quickly as possible. So there's this huge clash, and it's it's not the fault of the guys on the ground that. They're not being given the material support that other theatres are being given, and although I'm quite critical of the of the Allied Chiefs of Staff, they've still got terrible dilemmas. There's no question that the Italian campaign is helping o- Operation Overlord. That is helping the Soviet Union on the Eastern Front. You know, there's absolutely no question about that, and the casualties are horrific if you're in the frontline troops and particularly if you're in the infantry. And they're pretty ghastly if you're Italian. But in the big scheme of things, compared to loss of life elsewhere, it's not so very high. I mean, it is by today's standards. It's not by wartime standards. Individual units, yes, it's about as high as it's ever going to be. You know, infantry battalions, you know, if you're fighting Nazi Germany in the Western theatre, Italy is about as bad as it's going to get. You know, Normandy, Northwest Europe is 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 awful and brutal and terrible, but it's not as bad as Italy, as a proportion. Just because they're better served. And and you know, frontline troops in, in in Normandy, if you're allied, if you you know, say you're a British infantry battalion in Normandy, you're unlikely to be in the front line for more than four to six days. In Italy, you could easily be in the front line for two weeks, sixteen days. That's the difference. And every every further day you're there, you're more exhausted, you're more you know exhaustion leads to carelessness you're just exposing yourself more the risks are higher and, and i do remember that you know of the kind of i would say 35 people that i've interviewed over the last 25 years on the italian campaign only one wasn't wounded so you, you know you're, you're statistically your chance of of coming out unscathed is zero that's pretty awful and obviously you know it, it, it's hard not to be Touched by the experience of the Italians. I cover at the end of the book a, a, a massacre, a civilian massacre, that takes place high, high, high in the mountains, kind of um, to the um, to the east of Casino. And, you know, 42 people are killed. And the first two people are, are to be killed are, are a young woman who's given birth in the mountains to a child a month earlier, and and she is, as she has the baby at her breast, she's, she's kicked in the face, and then the German involved pulls out a pistol and shoots both her and her baby dead in front of the rest of her family. The rest of them are all then gunned down. I mean, it is absolutely horrendous you know, but again, you know, hovering in the background as you're writing this are, are the kind of experiences of, of Ukrainians in Bakhmut or, or Kherson or, or wherever or, or Mariupol, you know, who who are suffering similar sort of atrocities and gussiness. So, you know, that that's sort of hovering in the background. I think it's really important that when one writes about war that you, you kind of you do put it in that 360 degree perspective and and you you, you see war and its full kind of horrors. And you don't see it as a kind of sort of, you know, a military exercise to be picked over, that this is something that is that, that involves, you know, human beings and lives and, and all the rest of it.
0: That was James Holland. The Savage Storm, The Battle for Italy, 1943, is out now, published by Bantam. You can read his piece on the Italian campaign in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.
3: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control?
1: The Western world was asleep.